again. And you'll be happy to know that today is lot number 249, part 2. Picking up where we left off last. What does he want with the mummy then? Oh, he's a crank, you know. It's his hobby. He knows more about these things than any man in England. But I wish he wouldn't. Ah, he's beginning to come too. A faint tinge of color had begun to steal back into Bellingham's ghastly cheeks, and his eyelids shivered like a sail after a calm. He clasped and unclasped his hands, drew a long, thin breath between his teeth, and suddenly jerking up his head, threw a glance of recognition around him. As his eyes fell upon the mummy, he sprang off the sofa, seized the roll of papyrus, thrust it into a drawer, locked the drawer, and then staggered back onto the sofa. "'What's up?' he asked. "'What do you chaps want?' "'You've been shrieking out and making no end of a fuss,' said Monkhouse Lee. "'If our neighbor here from above hadn't come down, "'I'm sure I don't know what I should have done with you.' "'Ah, it's Mr. Abercrombie Smith,' said Bellingham, glancing up at him. "'How very good of you to come in. "'What a fool I am. "'Oh, my God, what a fool I am.' He sunk his head onto his hands and burst into a peal after peal of historical laughter. Hysterical laughter. Look here, drop it, cried Smith, shaking him roughly by the shoulder. Your nerves are all in a jangle. You must drop these little midnight games with mummies or you'll be going off your chump. You're all wires now, I wonder, said Billingham, whether you would be as cool as I am if you had seen... What then? Oh, nothing. I meant that I wonder if you could sit up at night with a mummy without trying your nerves. I have no doubt that you are quite right. I dare say that I have been taking it out on myself too much lately, but I'm all right now. Please don't go, though. Just wait for a few minutes until I am quite myself. The room is very close, remarked Lee, throwing open the window and letting in some cool night air. It's balsamic resin, said Bellingham. He lifted up one of the dried palmate leaves from the table and frizzled it up over the chimney of the lamp. It broke away into heavy smoke wreaths, and a pungent, biting odor filled the chamber. It's the sacred plant, the plant of the priests, he remarked. Do you know anything of Eastern languages, Mr. Smith? Nothing at all. Not a word. The answer seemed to lift a weight from the Egyptologist's mind. By the way, he continued, how long was it from the time that you came down until I came to my senses? Not long. Some four or five minutes. I thought it could not be very long, said he, drawing a long breath. But what a strange thing unconsciousness is. There is no measurement in it, or to it. I could not tell from my own sensations if it were seconds or weeks. Now that gentleman on the table was packed up in a daze of the 11th dynasty some 40 centuries ago. And yet, if he could find his tongue, he would tell us all this lapse of time has been but a closing of the eyes and a reopening of them. He is a singularly fine mummy, Mr. Smith. Smith stepped over to the table and looked down with a professional eye at the black and twisted form in front of him. The features, though horribly discolored, were perfect, 
and two little nut-like eyes still lurked in the depths of the black hollow sockets. The blotched skin was drawn tightly from bone to bone, and a tangled wrap of black coarse hair fell over the ears. Two thin teeth, like those of a rat, overlay the shriveled lower lip, and its crouching position with bent joints and craned head. There was a suggestion of energy about the horrible thing which made Smith's gorge rise. The gaunt ribs with their parchment-like covering were exposed, and the sunken, leaden-hued abdomen with the long slit with the embalmer had left his mark. But the lower limbs were wrapped round with coarse yellow bandages. A number of little clove-like pieces of myrrh and of cassia were sprinkled over the body and lay scattered on the inside of the case. I don't know his name, said Bellingham, passing his hand over the shriveled head. You see, the other, the outer sarcophagus with the inscriptions is missing. Lot number 249 is all the title he has now. You see it printed on this case? That was his number in the auction, at which I picked him up. He has been a very pretty sort of fellow in his day. Oh, he has been a very pretty sort of fellow in his day, remarked Abercrombie Smith. He has been a giant. His mummy is six foot seven in length. And that would be a giant over there, for they were never a very robust race. Fill these great knotted bones, too. He would be a nasty fellow to tackle. Perhaps these very hands helped to build the stones into the pyramids, suggested Monkhouse Lee, looking down with disgust in his eyes at the crooked, unclean talons. No fear. This fellow has been pickled in natron and looked after in the most approved style. They did not serve hoodsmen in that fashion. Salt or bitumen was enough for them. It has been calculated that this sort of thing cost about 730 pounds in our money. Our friend was a noble at the least. And what do you make of that small inscription near his feet, Mr. Smith? I told you I know no eastern tongue. Ah, so you did. It is the name of the embalmer, I take it. A very conscientious worker he must have been. I wonder how many modern works will survive 4,000 years. He kept on speaking lightly and rapidly, but it was evident to Abercrombie Smith that he was still palpitating with fear. His hand shook, his lower lip trembled, and look where he would, his eye always came sliding round to his gruesome companion. Through all his fear, however, there was a suspicion of triumph in his tone and manner. His eye shone in his footstep as he paced the room with brisk and jaunty. Was brisk and jaunty. He gave the impression of a man who had gone through an ordeal, the marks of which still bears upon him, but which has helped him to his end. "'You're not going yet?' he cried as Smith rose from the sofa." At the prospect of solitude, his fears seemed to crowd back upon him, and he stretched out a hand to detain him. Yes, I must go. I have my work to do. You are all right now. I think, with your nervous system, you should take some less morbid study. Oh, I'm not nervous as a rule, and I have wrapped unwrapped mummies before. You fainted last time, observed Monkhouse Lee. Ah, yes, so I did. 
Well, I must have a nerve tonic or a course of electricity. You're not going, Lee? I'll do whatever you wish, Ned. Then I'll come down with you and have a shakedown on your sofa. Good night, Mr. Smith. I'm so sorry to have disturbed you with my foolishness. They shook hands, and as the medical student stumbled up the spiral in a regular stair, he heard a key turn in a door, and the steps of his two new acquaintances as they descended to the lower floor. In this strange way began the acquaintance between Edward Bellingham and Abercrombie Smith, an acquaintance which the latter, at least, had no desire to push further. Bellingham, however, appeared to have taken a fancy to his rough-spoken neighbor, and made his advances in such a way that he could hardly be repulsed without absolute brutality. Twice he called to thank Smith for his assistance, and many times afterward he looked in with books, papers, and such other civilities as two bachelor neighbors can offer each other. He was, as Smith soon found, a man of wide reading, with Catholic tastes and an extraordinary memory. His manner, too, was so pleasing and suave that one came, after a time, to overlook his repellent appearance. For a jaded and wearied man, he was no unpleasant companion, and Smith found himself, after a time, looking forward to his visits, and even returning them. Clever as he undoubtedly was, however, the medical student seemed to detect a dash of insanity in the man. He broke out at times into a high, inflated style of talk, which was in contrast with the simplicity of his life. It is a wonderful thing, he cried, to feel that one can command powers of good and evil, a ministering angel or a demon of vengeance. And again, of Monkhouse Lee, he said, Lee is a good fellow, an honest fellow but he is without strength or ambition. He would not make a fit partner for a man with a great enterprise. He would not make a fit partner for me. At such hints and innuendos, stolid Smith, puffing solemnly at his pipe, would simply raise his eyebrows and shake his head, with little interjections of medical wisdom as to earlier hours and fresher air. One habit Bellingham had developed of late, which Smith knew to be frequent herald of his weakening mind. He appeared to be forever talking to himself, at late hours of the night, when there could be no visitor with him. Smith could still hear his voice beneath him in a low, muffled monologue, sunk almost to a whisper, and yet very audible in the silence. This solitary babbling annoyed and distracted the student, so that he spoke more than once to his neighbor about it. Bellingham, however, flushed at the charge, and denied curtly that he had uttered a sound. Indeed, he showed more annoyance over the matter than the occasion seemed to demand. Had Abercrombie Smith had any doubt as to his own ears, he had not to go far to find corroboration. Tom Stiles, the little wrinkled manservant who had attended to the wants of the lodgers and the turret for longer time than any man's memory could carry him, was sorely put it to it over the same matter. "'If you please, sir,' he said, as he tidied down the top chamber one morning, "'do you think Mr. Bellingham is all right, sir?' "'All right, Stiles.' "'Yes, sir. Right in his head, sir?' "'Why should he not be, then?' Well, I don't know, sir. His habits have changed of late. He's not the same man he used to be. 
though I make free to say that he was never quite one of my gentlemen like Mr. Hasty or yourself, sir. He's took to talking to himself, something awful. I wonder it don't disturb you. And for days sometimes he'll keep his door locked, so as I can't even make the bed, and then again he'll have it open the same as ever, wide open so all those who pass can see his mummies and things. I don't know what to make of him, sir. I don't know what business it is of yours, Styles. Well, I takes an interest, Mr. Smith. It may be forward of me, but I can't help it. I feel sometimes as if I was mother and father to my young gentleman. It all falls on me when things go wrong and the relations come. There was poor Mr. Williams, who went mad in 47, and Mr. McAllister in 62. Brains softening from overwork, they said. He lived in this very room. I don't speak of these delirium tremences, which I have had, which I've had, three on each floor, and four on the lowest. But Mr. Bellingham, sir, I want to know what is it that walks about his room sometimes when he's out, and when the door's locked on the outside. Eh? You're talking nonsense, Styles. Maybe no, sir, but I heard it more than once with my own ears. Rubbish, Styles. Very good, sir. You'll ring the bell if you want me. Abercrombie Smith gave a little heed to the gossip of the old man's servant, but a small incident occurred a few days later which left an unpleasant effect upon his mind and brought the words of Styles forcibly to his memory. Bellingham had come up to see him late one night and was entertaining him with an interesting account of the rock tombs of Ben Hassan in Upper Egypt, when Smith, whose hearing was remarkably, remarkably acute, distinctly heard the sound of a door opening on the landing below. There's some fellow going in or going out of your room, he remarked. Bellingham sprang up and stood helpless for a moment, with the expression of a man who is half incredulous and half afraid. I surely locked it. I am almost positive that I locked it, he stammered. No one could have opened it. Why, I hear someone coming up the steps now, said Smith. Bellingham rushed out through the door, slammed it loudly behind him, and hurried down the stairs. About halfway down, Smith heard him stop, and thought he caught the sound of whispering. A moment later, the door beneath him shut. A key creaked in the lock, and Bellingham, with beads of moisture upon his pale face, ascended the stairs once more and re-entered the room. "'It's all right,' he said, throwing himself down in a chair. "'It was that fool of a dog. He had pushed the door open.' I don't know how I came to forget to lock it. I didn't know you kept a dog, said Smith, looking very thoughtfully at the disturbed face of his companion. Yes, I haven't had him long. I must get rid of him. He's a great nuisance. He must be, if you find it so hard to shut him up. I should have thought that shutting the door would have been enough without locking it. I want to prevent old Styles from letting him out. He's of some value, you know, and it would be awkward to lose him. I'm a bit of a dog fancier myself, said Smith, still gazing hard at his companion from the corner of his eyes. Perhaps you'll let me have a look at it. Certainly. But I'm afraid it cannot be tonight. I have an appointment. Is that clock right? That I'm a quarter of an hour late already. You'll excuse me, I am sure. He picked up his cap and hurried from the room. In spite of his appointment, Smith heard him re-enter his own chamber and lock his door upon the inside. This interview left a disagreeable impression upon the medical student's mind, 
Bellingham had lied to him, and lied so clumsily that it looked as if he had desperate reasons for concealing truth. Smith knew that his neighbor had no dog. He knew also that the step which he had heard upon the stairs was not the step of an animal. But if it were not, then what could it be? There was Old Style's statement about the something which used to pace the room at times when the owner was absent. Could it be a woman? Smith rather inclined to the view. If so, it would mean disgrace and expulsion to Bellingham if he were discovered by the authorities, so that his anxiety and falsehoods might be accounted for. And yet it was inconceivable that an undergraduate could keep a woman in his rooms without being instantly detected. Be the explanation. What it might, there was something ugly about it, and Smith determined, as he turned to his books, to discourage all further attempts at intimacy on the part of his soft-spoken and ill-favored neighbor. But his work was destined to be interrupted that night. He had hardly caught up with the broken threads when a firm, heavy footfall came three steps at a time from below, and Hasty, in blazer and flannels, burst in the room. "'Still at it?' said he, plumping down into the wanted armchair. "'What a chap you are to stew!' "'I believe an earthquake might come and knock Oxford into that cooked hat. "'Or would you sit perfectly placid with your books among the ruins?' "'However, I won't bore you long. Three whiffs of backy, and I am off.' "'What's the news, then?' asked Smith, cramming a plug of bird's eye into his briar with his forefinger. "'Nothing very much. Wilson made seventy for the freshman against the eleven. "'They say that they will play him instead of Buttercombe, and for Buttercombe is clean off color. "'He used to be able to bowl a little, but it's nothing but half volleys and long hops now.' "'Medium right,' suggested Smith, with the intense gravity which comes upon a varsity man when he speaks of athletics.' Inclining to fast with a work from leg. Inclining too fast with a work from leg. What the fuck does that mean? Anyway, comes with the arm about three inches or so. He used to be nasty on the wet wicket. Oh, by the way, have you heard about Long Norton? Uh, this this side talk in this story is is definitely out of time. Anyway. What's that? He's been attacked. Attacked? Yes, just as he was turning out of High Street, and within a hundred yards of the old of the gate of Olds. But who? Ah, that's the rub. If you said what, it would be more grammatical. Norton swears that it was not human, and indeed, from the scratches on his throat, I should be inclined to agree with him. What then? Have we come down to spooks? Abercrombie Smith puffed his scientific contempt. Well, no, I don't think that is quite the idea either. I'm inclined to think that if any showman had lost a great ape lately, and the brood is in these parts, a jury would find a true bill against it. Norton passes that way every night, you know. But the same hour, there's a tree that hangs low over the path, the big elm from Rainey's garden. Norton thinks the thing dropped on him out of the tree. Anyhow, he was nearly strangled by two arms, which, he says, were as strong and as thin as steel bands. He saw nothing, only these beastly arms that frightened and tightened on him. He yelled his head nearly off, and a couple of chaps came running, and the thing went over the wall like a cat. He never got a fair sight of it the whole time. It gave Norton a shake-up. I can tell you, I can tell, it has been as good as a change at the seaside for him.
ga- a garotter? Most likely, said Smith. Very possibly, Norton says not, but we don't mind what he says. The garotter had long nails and was pretty smart at swinging himself over walls. By the way, your beautiful neighbor would be pleased if he heard about it. He had a grudge against Norton, and he's not a man, from what I know of him, to forget his little debts. But, hello, good chap. What have you got in your noddle? Nothing, Smith answered curtly. He had started in his chair, and the look had flashed over his face, which comes upon a man who is struck suddenly by an un- some unpleasant idea. You looked as if something had, I had said had taken you on the raw. By the way, you have made the acquaintance of Mr. B. Since I looked in last, have you not? Young Monkhouse Lee told me something to that effect. Yes, I know him slightly. He has been up here once or twice. Well, you're big enough and ugly enough to take care of yourself. He's not what I should call a healthy sort of Johnny. Though no doubt he's very clever and all that. But you'll soon find out for yourself. Lee is all right. He's a very decent little fellow. Well, so long, old chap. I saw... I wrote Mullins for the Vince Chancellor's pot on Wednesday week, so mind you come down in case I don't see you before. He clattered off with a trail of smoke behind him like a steamer, while Bovine Smith laid down his pipe and turned stoutedly to his books once more. But with all the will in the world, he found it is very hard to keep his mind upon the work. It would slip away to brood upon the man beneath him, and upon the little mystery which seemed to hang around his chambers. Then his thoughts turned to the singular attack, of which Hasty had spoken, and to the grudge which Bellingham was said to owe the object of it. The two ideas would persist in rising together in his mind, as though there was some close and intimate connection between them. And yet the suspicion was so dim and vague that it could not be put down in words. "'Confound the chap,' said Smith, as he shied his book on pathology across the room. "'He has spoiled my night's reading.' And that's reason enough that there was no other way why I should steer clear of him in the future. For ten days, the medical student confined himself so closely to his studies that B neither saw nor heard anything of either of the men beneath him. At the hours when Bellingham had been accustomed to visit him, he took care to sport his oak. And though more than once heard a knocking at his outer door, he resolutely refused to answer it. One afternoon, however, he was descending the stairs when, just as he was passing it, Bellingham's door flew open, and young Monkhouse Lee came out with his eyes sparkling and a dark flush of anger upon his olive cheeks. Close at his heels, following Bellingham, his fat, unhealthy face all quivering with malignant passion. "'You fool!' he hissed. "'You'll be sorry!' "'Very likely,' cried the other. "'Mind what I say. It's off. I won't hear of it. "'You've promised, anyhow. Oh, I'll keep that. I won't speak.' but I'd rather little Eva was in her grave. Once for all, it's off. She'll do what I say. We don't want to see you again. So much Smith could not avoid hearing, but he hurried on, for he had no wish to be involved in the dispute. There had been a serious breach between them. That was clear enough, and Lee was going to cause the engagement with his sister to be broken off. Smith thought of Hasty's comparison of the toad, and the dove, and was glad to think that the matter was at an end. Bellingham's face, when he was in a passion, was not pleasant to look upon. He was not a man to whom an innocent girl could be trusted for life. As he walked, Smith wondered languidly 
What could have caused the quarrel, and what promise might be which Bellingham had been so anxious that Monkhouse Lee should keep? It was the day of the sculling match between Hasty and Mullins, and a stream of men were making their way to the banks of the Isis. A May sun was shining brightly, and the yellow path was barred with black shadows of the tall elm trees. Elm trees. On either side, the gray colleges lay back from the road, the hoary old mothers of mines looking out from their high mullioned windows at the tide of young life which swept so merrily past them. Black-clad tutors, prime offic prim officials, pale reading men, brown-faced, straw-hatted young athletes in white sweaters, or many-colored blazers, all were hurrying towards the blue winding river which curves through the Oxford meadows. I believe at this point I am going to stop and we shall have part three. So that was part two of lot number 249. Nothing too exciting other than the introduction of the mummy and a lot of just titter-tatter between the chums at Oxford to be honest, I am absolutely bored with the story, to be honest. It's really a lot of talk, and I thought it was going to be more exciting than this. But maybe part three will be better. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed a little bit of talking and stuff, and uh, we'll hopefully be back for part three for the third time. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Good night. Mm -hmm.